Well, it's a joy to be here. I've been, I was here a few years ago before we all died of COVID, and uh, now I'm back, and uh, I feel at home with you guys, with Ross and the leaders. feels like I'm in my family. Wherever people love the message of the kingdom, that's where I'm at home. And because they love that, I feel that I'm, you know, addressing an audience that's the kind of audience I like to address. And uh, let me explain the, the bigger, bigger background. Um, I've been developing theology and writing books on the kingdom for decades and doing education. And, you know, you get bigger and bigger in what you say. I've done about 15 books. And then a terrible thing was asked of me. They asked me, some of the leaders I am accountable to, to have a go at writing uh, like a confession or a statement of faith that is kingdom expressing. And they said, make it very kingdom and make it very short. Now, you know what happens to a person like me when you tell him to do something short? So it really concentrated my mind for months, and I've been involved with guys I'm mentoring around the world. I said, please help me. And I actually took a previous confession that was my starting point that was like 1,200 words, and I abbreviated it to 600 words, and then I wrote an abbreviation of that in 300 words. So I think that's a heroic um, result. But then I started thinking about discipleship, or what the older churches called catechism, which is how do we provide a foundation that we try to lay into like our new converts, our new church members, our emerging youth, our home groups, our leaders, so that we can take this whole wonderful message of the kingdom and distill it into a transferable, communicable so this is, this is what I'm hot on right now. And I landed up doing one talk, which I did quickly with the leaders um, the other day, which takes about 30 to 40 minutes, where I try to summarize the whole of the message of the kingdom in one shot. I, I'm going to do a little bit more now, but it's sort of flowing from there. And this is also one of those things that um, tries to summarize a lot. The other thing I was asked to do a couple of years ago is do something on the doctrine of the atonement. Because you may not know, but there's a whole controversy that's developed in the evangelical world about what's called penal substitution. You know, that as Jesus hung on the cross, he bore the wrath of God for us. And people were saying, this makes God into an angry God and a cosmic child abuser, and we don't need this doctrine. So anyway, we spent like a year, I read like a hundred books on the atonement, you know. Uh, and eventually we, we published this atonement in the kingdom, which I've done with five other authors. And that also is part of this journey, because what it raised for me is, what exactly is the gospel we preach? And is the gospel we preach the same as the gospel that's preached around the church? And my conclusion was, no, it's not. And so you need to know 
you know, which gospel are you flying a flag for? And which gospel do you want to disciple your people in? So that's why I'm onto this, and I'm calling this the full gospel of the kingdom. And you'll see why. It doesn't mean the denomination called full gospel. It means, you know, the full-on message of, of the kingdom. So a church like this and the churches I, I'm part of are broadly speaking part of a charismatic movement. We believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today. We don't think they ceased with the apostles. We practice them. They're very much part of our mission. And we are, a, you know, with the Pentecostals, part of this group that now covers the Pentecostals, the charismatic independents, charismatic Catholics, charismatic Episcopalians, Anglicans. That's the group I'm talking about. And this brand of Christianity, that of course has diversity within it, but what is it common is we believe the gifts of today and we function in them, we believe the Holy Spirit is moving in that way, made up 6% of global Christianity in 1980 and 25% of Christianity by 2020. Here's another Ralph Martin, this is a bit out of date, I should get new stats by the way, because it gets better all the time. By 1992, the members of Pentecostals and Charismatics had grown to over 410 million and now comprise 24.2% of world Christianity. My research has led me to make a bold statement. In all of human history, no other non-political, non-militaristic, voluntary human movement has grown as rapidly as the Pentecostal Charismatic movement in the last 25 years. And another researcher, this is a bit later, in 2019, so that's not so out of date. Today, one in four Christians in the world identifies as Pentecostal or Charismatic, with Pentecostalism stroke Charismatic should be growing at roughly four times the rate of the world's population itself. So we are a kind of plague spreading through the church and into humanity. So why would this brand or sector of the church be growing in proportion to the rest of the church so dramatically. And by the way, it is in the majority world that most of this growth is taking place. Western world, you know, US, Europe and stuff, it's a little bit of a dicey stat, but you talk about Africa, Latin America, Asia, Eastern Europe, oh man, it's like China. The fastest growing church in all of human history. And so my answer is the full gospel. Because if you don't preach the gospel of the kingdom, it doesn't have the power to grow. And so we'd better think about what is the gospel we preach. All right. So this raises the question of, well, what has gone wrong with the gospel where the church doesn't seem to be growing? And I'm going to drop a few names now of theologians because I'm pretending to be a theologian, so I'd better drop some names. These are real theologians I'm talking about. You know, they're professors at colleges. And I'm going to quote a few U.S. authors and a U.K. author or two. So there's a guy called Scott McKnight. He's in a Baptist seminary. There's a guy called Matthew Bates who's in a, another sort of evangelical 
University. Then there's N.T. Wright, who's a charismatic Anglican bishop in England. You know, Oxford, Cambridge, teacher, way up there. Very influential in kingdom of God thinking. And then there's a guy called Graham Twelvetree, who's the dean of the London School of Theology, and I happen to know him. He's a friend of mine. And so I am not alone in saying there is an effective and not effective gospel. I'm not on a sort of lunatic limb. And the fact is, a reduced gospel produces a powerless Christianity. So here is a few um, other details. As I mentioned, I got to think about all of this because of this project on the atonement. And I wrote that with other authors, and the issue was the doctrine of penal substitution. And we decided not to throw out penal substitution. Part of the problem is it's the way it's taught in an unbiblical way that causes offense. And, you know, God is definitely not a child abuser. <laughs> and, uh, in fact, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, were involved in the cross, not like you know, the father and the son are going off in two different directions. But in looking at it, we decided that the problem was a thing called reductionism. That's a big word, but basically it means when you take an aspect of the truth and you blow it up to be the whole truth, and that's reductionism. And, you know, there's a long history of that that I go through in the chapter I write here. Like Calvin, for instance, said that the gifts of the Spirit died out with the apostles. They had ceased. And hence, there's a doctrine called cessationism. And for centuries, Reformed evangelical pastors believed there can be no gifts today. Well, that paralyzes the church, you know? And there's a whole lot of ways in which this has happened. So what is reductionism? This is just a quote out of, um, oh, let me go backwards, out of this book. It is not that what is being affirmed, believed, and confessed is wrong in itself. The problem is when elements are reduced and then elevated to such an extent that the truth they represent is presented as the whole truth. Then when a small though important element of the truth is communicated as the gospel, there's not only less than the whole truth, but in a certain sense becomes untruth, not the truth. Now, here is a very simplified version of what has happened. And I know this is a bit of an extreme statement. But for many in the church, the gospel is this. Jesus died on the cross so that I can have my sins forgiven, that when I die, I will go to heaven. Now, relax. Every word in that sentence is true. Remember, reductionism is when you take the truth and you make it the whole truth. Have you noticed I've highlighted the words I and my? It's actually a very me-centered thing. God exists to sort me out. And once I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. Well, I'm done. So you ask questions, well, what about becoming part of God's plan on the earth to do stuff for him? You know, maybe that's why I got saved. Not just when I die, I go to heaven. So, also, if this is linked to a form of evangelism that doesn't really have its discipleship in it, you know, you think of the big crusade, the evangelist, decide for Jesus now, you pray the sinner's prayer, 
and instantly a kind of legal exchange takes place. Jesus takes your sin, you take his righteousness, and then you're done. doesn't really matter too much how you live after that because your deal is done, see? And so you might think, is this really what's going on? So here are some of these guys I was mentioning earlier, and obviously they're talking a lot about the American Bible Belt, but the issues they're talking about are right through the evangelical church in the world into this country as well. So it's not just there. So N.T. Wright, this you know, charismatic Anglican bishop, says, for many people, the gospel has shrunk right down to a statement about Jesus' death and its meaning and a prayer with which people accept it. Um, this guy, Scott McKnight, he says, so we are singularly focused on the personal plan of salvation and how we get saved, and we eliminate the story of Israel and the story of Jesus altogether. Jesus believed the kingdom of God was breaking into history, and that he was the center of the kingdom of God, proclaiming this event was the single consistent meaning of the gospel. See, there's nothing there about just me getting saved for my own self. There is one and only one gospel, and was preached by Jesus, by Paul, and by Peter. So let's find that gospel, and let's make sure we preach it. So if what has happened is they've reduced it down to, Jesus died on the cross that I can have my sins forgiven, but that is the truth, let's start there and say yes to that. And I mean, I love the message of salvation by grace through faith because Jesus died on the cross and I can have my sins forgiven. I can be justified by faith. In fact, the death of Jesus from a kingdom of God perspective is the end of the world judgment that has occurred already in the judgment of the cross. And so if I am in Jesus, I don't enter into future judgment. I've already passed from death to life. My destiny is sealed and God has accepted me as his son or daughter. And what a wonderful, liberating message. And there are all sorts of people who've highlighted that, and that's been highlighted ever since the Protestant Reformation. So we say yes to that. Um, but even if we say yes to that, if you look into the meaning of the cross of Jesus, you'll find that there are a whole lot of different theories of the atonement that come out of different ways the New Testament describes the cross of Jesus. And even the cross is like a multifaceted diamond. You don't just take one thing out of it, right? So one of the metaphors of the cross is called Christus Victor, that he disarmed the principalities and powers triumphing over them in the cross. And this is a spiritual warfare metaphor. It's a military metaphor. It's God coming against all the powers that hold humanity in slavery, defeating them and liberating us. And actually, in history, that's the oldest theory of the atonement that was in the church for the first thousand years. All the early church fathers and Jesus and Paul, actually, this is how they understood the work of the cross. Then there's the penal substitution one. Jesus died... And it's a legal metaphor that, you know, Jesus was tried. He was found guilty. Because he was found guilty, we can be found not guilty. In the whole of Romans 2, 3, 4, and 5, 
is a brilliant legal argument of the Apostle Paul where he first prosecutes us and finds us totally guilty and then he turns around and says, but now Jesus has died and then he defends us and by the end he says, we have peace with God and we've been reconciled to God, see? And that's a, that's a good one. It's a legal forensic metaphor. Then you get the sacrifice metaphor that comes out of the temple because Jesus died as a sacrifice and you know, Hebrews, that by one sacrifice he is cleansed forever. Those who are, and it's, a, it's to do with being purified, your conscience being cleansed, feeling, knowing that you're really cleansed inside. And that's a very rich metaphor of the atonement. And then you get the redemption. Jesus died as our redeemer. And this would have resonated with the people in the first century because in the slave markets, a slave could be bought out of slavery by a redemption price and gain their liberty. And they did a little trick. A slave that earned a bit of money, and some of them did, they'd save up with the local priest in the pagan temple, and then they'd go to the market, and the priest would buy them on behalf of the god. But the god was invisible, so then they could serve whatever they, whoever they wanted to because they were now owned by a god, you see. And this was a well-known Practice, but so when Paul said Jesus shed His blood to buy us out of slavery, that, that really meant a lot, and it still means a lot. And then there's the reconciliation that, because we are justified by faith, Paul says we are reconciled with God. This is a family metaphor. It's the father running down the road to the prodigal son and embracing him and says, this my son was lost and now he's found. Welcome back, my son, into the family. And we are adopted to be sons and daughters of God. See? So the cross is a very rich and wonderful uh, truth. The problem with what's happened to it is point two has been taken and elevated as though that is the main gospel. And so even when it comes to the glory of the cross, there's been a shrinking down in the message. So yes to the cross, but let's have the whole cross message, not just a bit of it. But then immediately we think of Paul's place where he says, this is the gospel I preach. This is the gospel by which you were saved. This is what I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It's not just that he died. He died and he rose. And you know, the whole Eastern Orthodox Church, their whole theology is the resurrection. And the cross is sort of like a prelude to the triumph of the resurrection. And a gospel of the cross without the resurrection is, is definitely at least half the gospel. So why is the resurrection so important? And there are two things about the resurrection that are absolutely vital. And this first point is a point I get more and more excited about the older I get. The gospels tell the story of the phenomenon of the risen body of Jesus. That, you know... He could be hugged. He said, I've got flesh and bones. I'm not a spirit. He could eat a meal. He made a braai on the shores of Galilee. You know, he wasn't a ghost. He was real, tangible flesh and bones. 
but he could appear and disappear. And he could be in Emmaus and then in Jerusalem. He could appear in the middle of a room with all the doors and windows locked. It's not surprising that they got quite an adrenaline rush. Imagine if you'd been to the funeral of somebody three days ago and you're sitting around your dining room table and the next second he's sitting there. He says, hi guys, have you got something to eat? Whoa, man. And, and so he had a transcendent body that somehow had the properties of another world. And because this happened to him at the age of 30 when he was sort of at the peak of life, he sort of hit immortality. And, you know, how old is Jesus today? He's still 30 years old because he's in a resurrected immortal body. Now, here's the point. Paul says that that risen body of Jesus is the prototype of the bodies we're going to get. If we're alive, the Holy Spirit will fall upon us in the moment of a twinkling of an eye. This mortal body will put on immortality. And I always say this when I'm in America because they can't get it. I say, when that happens to you, try a war. And they say, what, a war, a war? I say, a wall, and I try and do it in an American way. You know, walk up to it and walk straight through it. And on the other side, hunk somebody and have a bri. And you'll be living in the kingdom of God. So there's no place in the whole of Scripture where we can literally see what the future kingdom of God looks like more than the risen body of Jesus. And so when you meet me one day, when we have got glorified bodies, you won't meet this old guy. You'll meet a very good-looking <laughs> surfer dude who grew up surfing on Sinquasi Beach. I'll probably be tanned again. So that's why this part of the message of the gospel gets more and more important to me the older I get. And you see, N.T. Wright, this theologian, he says this is so important because a lot of Greek philosophy has come into the church and the idea that in the afterlife we sort of go off into a spirit lala land where we float around like clouds with harps and things, you know. And, you know, when you meet me in that world, you won't see this wonderful 30-year-old Sinquasi Beach surfer. You just like, see like a cloud substance with some eyes in the middle and I'll say, hello. Um, <laughs> And if you listen to how people talk at funerals, a lot of them actually think, my loved one has gone off into la-la land. You know what it means. And the body, the, the, the spirit leaves the body. That's Gnosticism. Now, the biblical faith of the resurrection is we are re-embodied gloriously and permanently. And heaven comes down, the new Jerusalem comes down to earth. It's this planet renewed by God, populated by all the believers in bodies at the, the way they were at the peak of life and never aging anymore in a totally new society. Isn't that a hope? There is no message on earth that is more hopeful and inspiring than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people who don't know Jesus, that's what they're missing. But the other part of it is that we get born again by the power of the resurrection. 
And I'm just going to give you some texts here. When Jesus came out of the grave and he met his disciples, showed them his wounds and had the meal and all that, he said, peace be to you, because they were terrified. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And the word breathe that John uses there evokes the same word in the Greek Old Testament when Adam had the breath of God breathed into him. And what it's really saying is just like that first humanity, God breathed and created man in his image. Now God is starting all over again a new humanity breathed into by the immortal risen life of Jesus who had just conquered death. And so Peter says that's what it means to be born again. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You see, it is immortal. What is the born-again experience? It's not just, you know, we use it very flippantly. Are you born again? Which means, basically, did you go to an evangelistic meeting and pray the prayer? No, no, no. This is, a, this is an absolute miracle. Paul talks about how our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. And Paul is the expert of explaining this, that born into us when we are born again is the very nature of Christ. And the image of God that we lost in sin gets put back inside of us. And from day one, although maybe only a seed in the beginning, a new you that is already just like God in true righteousness and holiness is born within you. And you then start to grow with that new you getting bigger and bigger inside of you until it becomes all of you, right? And we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So this whole teaching of the new nature we have in Christ, which is the opposite of the like new age you know, thing, everybody has God in them, no not, not everybody has God in there. Most people are dead in their sins. But when Jesus breathes his risen life into you, then you've got the new life of God in you. And the whole teaching of Christian identity. And Paul, in the second half of Romans, teaches us that because of our union with Christ through being born again, so that we are one with him and he lives in us and we live in him, Jesus' story has become our story and so we also were buried, and we also were raised. And he says, sin will no longer have dominion over you, because you have died to your old nature, and you've put on a new nature. And in fact, in Romans 8, he says that the full obedience of the law, the full righteousness of, of the law, is lived out in us, because we live in the spirit and not in the flesh. We actually can live a life of righteousness, pleasing God, or in simple language. It's not just that we have our sins forgiven when Jesus died on the cross. There is the promise of living in victory over the power of sin because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you see, a gospel that doesn't tell the believers that is possible is half a gospel. And we need to be sure that we really have grounded our people in their new identity in Christ. Not in a sort of weird sense that I'll never sin again. No, we know we, we still struggle. But predominantly what I am becoming is my new self. And I'm leaving behind my old self. This really is possible to walk with God 
like that. As we walk in fellowship and worship and discipleship, it really is possible. And there's never been a time in history, especially in the Western world, where this message is more important because of the identity crisis in the world out there, especially our young people, where you get you know, social media, teen suicide, people having terrible negative thoughts about themselves. We've got the good news. You can be a new person in Christ, and you can have a very strong sense of identity, but not an idolatry of self, but a dying with Christ and rising again and living in him. So what I'm saying is, let's add the resurrection to the cross as part of the gospel we preach. Do you agree with me? Hey, say amen. Yes, we want this, we want this bigger gospel, right? But as the Americans say, you ain't seen nothing yet, man. So what about the ministry and message of Jesus? The gospel actually began when Jesus announced the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe the good news. Started in his ministry in Galilee. And the same theologian N.T. Wright, he says, you know, the creeds, and so there's some precedence for trying to write new statements of faith, have a big problem. It's not what they say is wrong, it's what they don't say. You know, the creed goes, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, comma, crucified and died. What happened to his ministry? Zut. It's not there. Now, that can't be the gospel. So I've got a charismatic Methodist friend in, in Johannesburg who's a pastor, and he's written a big, fat book called The Missing Jesus. And in a lot of Christianity, he just went missing. So people preach from Paul's letters, and they preach from the Gospels on the passion narrative and the resurrection, if you get a bit of a chance. The ministry of Jesus, how does that? I mean, one theologian actually wrote this. He says, I haven't worked out how the gospel Jesus preached connects to the gospel Paul preached about the cross and resurrection. He said, I haven't worked it out. I mean, that serious problem, man. So, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. He says, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. It all started when Jesus began his ministry. And when he went into the synagogue, he explained why he had come. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To put it very simply, Jesus came as the great liberator to liberate humanity from everything that is oppressing us and enslaving us. And he didn't just say, this is what I've come to do. He started doing it. And so if you, I just love telling the story of Jesus and he started exercising demons. He started healing the sick. He started forgiving sinners. He started welcoming to his table people that the religious system had rejected. And women and children and Gentiles that were previously like, no, don't want those. The ritually impure he welcomed. Um, he brought justice to the poor. He fed the people that were impoverished. And he raised the dead, 
And he even started commanding storms to obey. He started to rule creation like Adam was supposed to govern creation under God. And what you see in the ministry of Jesus is the new world is being born. And wherever he goes, humanity is being liberated from everything that binds us. And you know, there's an old wonderful saying, singing a song that I used to sing as a young Pentecostal pastor. Yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus is the same. Are any of you Pentecostal enough to know how to sing that song? Anybody? Anybody? There's one. There's one. But I won't make you try. But you see, the thing is, Jesus is still doing these things right now through us. Because as he did signs and wonders and announced and demonstrated the kingdom, the book of Acts shows the apostles doing exactly the same signs and wonders. And there's a little theological point here. It's really important to say that Jesus did the signs of the kingdom out of his anointed humanity, not out of his divinity. Because if Jesus did these things because he was divine, then we couldn't do them. But he could hand them on to the 12 and to the 70 and to the early church because we believe in his divinity. But in this part of his ministry, he was the anointed Messiah, the one like David where the Spirit of God came upon him. And from that day on, after his baptism and the Holy Spirit came upon him, he started doing these things. And in Pentecost, that same anointing that Jesus received comes on us, and we can start doing these things. So that we become the good news as well in the world today. So what happened to, I, you know, Jesus died on a cross that I can have my sins forgiven, that I can go to heaven. What about doing all of these things? No, no, we are saved to do this stuff. See? So I think we need the ministry of Jesus as well. Do you agree with me? We're busy reforming the church here, guys. We need the ministry of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus to be preaching the full gospel. But we haven't finished yet. We also need the ascension of Jesus. And what happened in the ascension of Jesus is Pentecost happened. Happened. Exalted at the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see and hear. So there's no doubt the moment he sat down at the right hand of God, Holy Spirit was poured out. So to speak of the gospel of the ascension of Jesus is to speak of the gospel of the Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit. And he said to them, do not try and do this mission until you receive this anointing. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, there is why this charismatic sector of the church is growing so rapidly compared to the other part of the church, because you need the power to do this stuff. And their church history books on missions, I can give you big fat books, that wherever you have revivals and the outpouring of the power phenomena of the Spirit, the evangelism and growth of the church goes up exponentially. So, there's no doubt about it. So, Pentecost is actually not when the early church was born again. The born again experience comes out of the resurrection. Pentecost was those who already called apostles, 
ready to obey Jesus, and the anointing of the Spirit came upon him. And the way Luke tells the story of Pentecost is in a very interesting way. He echoes stories in the Old Testament of the transfer of the Spirit to successors like Moses to Joshua, uh, Saul to David, but mostly Elijah to Elisha. And what happened is when Elisha saw Elijah ascend, the spirit that had anointed Elijah fell on Elisha. And you remember what they said? Now Elisha is one of the prophets because he has received the anointing. And see, Jesus did all these signs and wonders during his ministry. But as he ascended, he said, wait, you will receive power. As he ascended, he poured out the Spirit, and they became his successors. The anointing that was on Jesus fell on 120, and the church was empowered for mission. And that's why they preached the gospel in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after a hundred years or so, they were the major population of the whole Roman Empire <clears throat> out of numbers. And right now, that type of exponential <clears throat> growth is happening to the Chinese underground church. It's not that it only just happened then. See, So do you think we need the ascension of Jesus as well in the gospel we proclaim? I think we do. Because that's how we become the good news. And you know, this church is the best thing that's ever happened to this community. You are the good news. And as you go and you bring the liberty of Jesus, and if people are demonized, set them free. If people are sick, you pray for them. If people are filled with guilt, you bring them the forgiveness of Jesus. If people are poor, you bring them hope. And you know, there's the whole transforming effect of the gospel for the poor. That's another whole statistic you can prove. Um, and we become the embodiment and carriers of this full gospel of Jesus. So we need the ministry of Jesus. We need the death of Jesus. We need the resurrection of Jesus. We need the ascension of Jesus. We need all of Jesus. And everything about Jesus is ministered to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just that Jesus is a history figure out there. When I believe Jesus is, is the liberator, he becomes my liberator. I invite him, Jesus, come and liberate me from everything that I need liberating from. When I believe Jesus died for me, I receive that free grace of forgiveness into my life. When I believe Jesus rose for me, I get born again by the Spirit, you know. And when I believe Jesus ascended and poured out the Spirit, I seek to be baptized in the Holy Spirit so that I can move in the charismatic phenomena of the Spirit. Every one of these things is, his story becomes our story because the Holy Spirit takes his story and makes it our story. And then we get on fire and we carry the fire of God wherever we go. Now, I went into this um, the other day, but... The whole biblical story goes in this grand narrative from creation to new creation. And, you know, humanity fell and God chose Israel and Israel failed and God chose the remnant in Israel and they failed and then God chose one man, Jesus, 
who turned humanity around. And now from Jesus, this thing spreads out. And he chose 12 to show that he was reestablishing the new nation of Israel, the new people of God. The 70 represented all the nations of the earth. So the new nation is there to again reach all the nations. The 120 was the number needed to form a ruling body in Israel or a Sanhedrin. So the full setup of the new kingdom of God community was there. And then the Holy Spirit came and then 3,000 got converted and 5,000 and they spread through the earth. And the church worldwide was born that we are part of this movement. And now we are at this stage in history where we are sent to reach all the nations of the earth until there is a new humanity. And then there can come a new creation. So we aren't just nobodies. We aren't just sitting and waiting for the rapture. We aren't just saying, thank God I'm saved. I'm, when I die, I'm going to be okay. We're not like confused about who we are. No, man, we have got this massive plan of God that involves nothing less than God renewing all of humanity and all of creation. And how are we going to do that? Preach the gospel. Preach the whole gospel and live the whole gospel. So this is the last slide. How long have I been talking? It's not too long, hey. All right. So I haven't seen anybody nodding off yet. <laughs> so I'm going to go into this last one. This is my shot in a kind of creedal confessional way to very succinctly State the gospel we preach. What is the gospel we preach? It is that God has come as he has promised. Very simple. So I haven't gone into this, but as he has promised, summarizes the whole story of Israel, where the kingdom of God first came through the Exodus event, then the Davidic monarchy, then in the pro pro promises of the great prophets, and I deal with this in the first like 80 pages of this book. And it's a growing, bigger and bigger vision of the coming kingdom. And the story of Jesus is the climax of the story of Israel. And so actually you can't tell the full story of the gospel without telling the story of Israel. It's really important. And, and again, Wright says the problem with a lot of theology is it goes from creation, great, fall of Adam, disaster, jumps over the whole history of Israel to the cross. That's not the gospel. Now, the gospel is God started this plan to renew humanity way back with calling Abraham. And this vision grows and grows and grows, and, and then Jesus comes. And so God has come is how everything that has happened in Jesus answers everything God has promised. So the gospel really is saying is God is a good God. He's faithful. And he promised to come and renew humanity and renew creation. And he came. And you can say to people, you know, he can come to you as well. He's a faithful God. How has he come? He's come to renew all things, including a renewed humanity in his image and a new, renewed creation. See, it's not just to save me that when I die, I'll go to heaven and leave this planet. Now, God has a huge purpose for this 
humanity in, in this world to be redeemed. And how is he going to do that? He's come to reestablish his kingdom, to reign. And that's why Jesus said, pray this prayer, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven. And how has he come to reestablish his reign? He has come to do that through anointing Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the King. And it's all focused on this Jesus who anointed by the Spirit. And how is he coming through Jesus anointed by the Spirit? He is coming through the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. See, that's what I've been going through. We need the whole story of Jesus. It's the whole gospel. And then, like you get a zipped file on your laptop, your computer, and you go unzip, you know, and it becomes 15 files or whatever. Each one of these, we can start enlarging it. See, the point here is when you witness or when you preach or however you're sharing the gospel, you can't download this whole thing to a person. It'll take quite a long time. The Holy Spirit leads you into which part of it is for this moment now for this person. You know, if they demonized, then it's, you know, Jesus was the great liberator. He came driving demons out. If they're sick, you know, there's hope. I can lay hands on you right now. And on and on. Um, so we need to move in the Holy Spirit, especially through the charismatic gift. Sometimes God even shows us what people's needs are before they even say it. That's a good deal because then they realize, hey, God's after me. He came to get me today because he knew what, what my problem was before even I told them. See, faith rises when you operate in prophetic gifts like that. But ultimately, as we disciple our people and we bring new Christians up in the faith, we need to disciple them in the whole story of the gospel. It's not a hang of a complicated thing, see? And so we must talk about the power of the message of Jesus, that he came to deliver people from Satan, sin, sickness, demons, religious oppression, death and injustice and poverty. It's the whole story of Jesus to liberate humanity. And he's still doing these things today. And we need to explain the wonder of the of the cross as I went through. The power of the forgiveness. And we need to say that you ain't seen nothing yet. It's the resurrection of Jesus. You need to be born again and have a new nature. And you've got a hope that one day you're going to have this new body. And your whole vision of the world to come is shaped by this. Whole different vision of life. And the ascension of Christ. So that he poured out like Elijah on Elisha. He poured out his anointing on his successors. So you know the early Christians were called Christianity by the non-Christians. And that means little Christs. Little anointed ones. We are replicating Jesus millions of times as we become millions of believers. And he's just multiplying himself like a plague on planet Earth because of succession of Pentecost. And then ultimately, God is faithful. God will come at the end of the age to execute final judgment, raise the dead in Christ to eternal life and create a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to sort this whole planet out. And then there will be the glory of God covering the earth and the new community, that great company from every language, tribe, tongue, and people in resurrected bodies living for God in a beautiful new world that God has renewed and creation 
uh, and we have a, a hope to offer humanity that no secular humanist, secular humanist, no other religion can come anywhere near offering what we offer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you see. And the whole thing is between God has come and God will come. So that's another whole subject, that the mystery of what happened in Jesus is that what will happen at the end arrived in a down payment already in the, in the coming of Jesus so that the new creation began to be poured out and revealed in Jesus and it will finally be revealed in Jesus. But we live between what has already happened and what will happen. One theologian used the, um, the metaphor of D-Day and V-Day, and most of you are too young to know what that even means. There was once a thing called the Second World War that my father fought in. And when the Allies invaded France and the big battle was over, everybody knew the war was won. That was D-Day. But it took months before they went and eventually Hitler surrendered, and then it was V-Day, see. And we live in this space where the triumph has already begun, but it has not yet fully realized. And we move from victory into consummation. That's the space we live in. But it's a space of a battle. It's, the battle isn't over. There are, you know, missiles flying over your head and jets bombing you, and it's a dangerous place to be a Christian in this world, but we've already won the battle. And in the gospel we've got, we move from triumph to triumph. So, Go and do it to Durban. Go and do it to the whole of KZN, my home province. Pumukwasulumina. Go and do it to my people. Be the great people of the gospel. Can I just pray with you? You've been sitting a lot. Just stand up maybe and uh, I'm going to pray for you. So I just believe this is encouragement. So Lord, I bring you this, your people, and I pray that you will just fill them with encouragement and anoint them again with passion for who they are in you and the great calling and identity they have. And Lord, again and again, let Pentecost come here and anoint them with power release gifts, but most of all, Lord, send them into the cafes, into the shopping malls, into the businesses, into the schools. Send them speaking the gospel and bringing freedom to the captives. And so as you stand there, I just say, I bless you in Jesus' name. Go and preach the gospel. Amen. 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 God bless you. Derek, I know you, you think you've finished, but I feel like you've... Are you going to interrogate me now? Um, what I would love you to do is, a, is unpack Pentecost for 10 minutes for us, because you've, you've like given us the main course, but there is a little bit of dessert that we wouldn't mind. All right, I can say a few things more about Pentecost. Um, 
one of the exciting things that's happened in the last hundred years is the development of what is called biblical theology, which is not like systematic theology. It, it stays in the story of the biblical writers and how they tell the story. And out of that has come what is called narrative theology, which is that God has chosen the way the story is told to present his revelation to us. And so there's been all of these studies into Luke and the way he shapes the story. And we know that Acts is the is this second volume that Luke wrote because he introduces it as volume two, you know? And they're, they're roughly the same length. And if you read Luke and Acts, you'll see that he goes into great lengths to parallel the story. You know, it begins with a birth, and then the Spirit comes, and there's preaching, and then there's growth, and then there's a journey, and then there's both ends with three trials, and then death and resurrection. Well, actually, Paul dies, and we, I guess he gets martyred, but you can see. And he's deliberately saying, look at the parallel. The second thing is that Luke is steeped in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the very phrases and words that are used throughout the Old Testament for like the anointing of the Spirit, prophesying, are all the words he picks up. And one of the things that again and again comes in the Old Testament are transfer of the Spirit narratives. The transfer of the Spirit from Moses to the 70 elders, for instance. The transfer of the Spirit from Elijah to Elisha. And when the Holy Spirit is transferred like this in the Old Testament, almost every time the phenomenon that happens when people receive the power of the Spirit is prophetic. The, 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 in the book of Numbers, it says they prophesied. And actually, the, the word there probably means they spoke in tongues. And then when the Spirit, oh, I'm echoing here. When, when the Spirit came on Saul, for instance, he lay down under the power of God, you know. And when the Spirit came on David and Samson and all of that. And most of the time, it was prophetic type phenomena, often interestingly linked to worship. So the one prophet, they said, prophesied to us, and he said, oh, send me a minstrel, worship leader. And then he got into worship, and then he started prophesying. So it, it was like this company of the prophets that used to go around worshiping God, and then the Spirit of God would come upon them. Very similar phenomena to the book of Acts. And so the other phenomenon you had in the Old Testament was called theophany, where God would come in a tangible, visible way, like in the burning bush, or a figure called the angel of the Lord who was like a pre-incarnate Christ. And generally, those experiences of God were commissioning experiences. Moses, go and deliver my people. Gideon, go and deliver my people. And there was this tangible revelation of God that involved them being commissioned. And then as they went to obey the commission, the prophetic anointing of the Spirit would fall upon them and they would be empowered. And the, the phenomena of the prophetic were the signs authenticating the fact that this person had been called to become a judge or a king or a 
prophet. So in the Old Testament, the gift of the Spirit wasn't to get you saved. You were already saved because you were part of Israel. The gift of the Spirit was to anoint those commissioned to do great deeds for God. And then what happened is, as the voice of prophecy ended and they went into exile, that they said, you know, God is so angry with us, he doesn't even speak to us anymore. There are no more prophets. We just have the echo of his voice in the scriptures. But then they started believing that one day the prophetic anointing will come back. And the sign that the kingdom of God has dawned will be the prophetic will come back. And so Luke's main theme throughout Luke and Acts is the prophetic. As Jesus is born, there's prophesying going all over the place. You know, Zechariah, Mary, Elizabeth, it's the prophetic has come back. As Jesus is baptized, the prophetic power of the Spirit comes on him and he starts functioning in a, as a signs and wonders prophet like Elijah, doing all the same signs Elijah did, feeding the poor uh, miraculously, raising the dead, being transported from one place to the next, power coming out of his body, revelatory gifts of knowledge. Um, and so Jesus starts doing all of these signs and wonders because he, of course, he was more than a prophet. He was the Messiah. He was the son of God. But the story Luke tells is this prophetic anointing of Jesus. And then on the day of Pentecost, they are now born again. The church has been formed, 12 leaders, 70 for the nations. The new Sanhedrin is in place. So Pentecost was not when the church was born or born again. That was all in place. It was when the succession the transfer of the Spirit took place. And then the Spirit falls and the same phenomena of prophetic worship and praise and speaking in tongues that was there throughout the history of the Old Testament that was part of the empowering of people already commissioned. And so what's interesting is the, um, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus functions like a theophany. The cloud of glory took him up to God. There's the commissioning, and he commissioned them. And then his anointing comes upon them. But this time it's not just for special Old Testament prophets, but all flesh is filled with the Holy Spirit. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Even your old men like me will dream dreams. And I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. See, so that, and symbolically, all the nations that were there at Babel were somehow gathered and they all heard speaking in tongues. And what it's saying is this is the reversal of humanity being lost in bondage. Here is the gospel game to every nation on the face of the earth because they are represented right here. And then you find the book of Acts rolls out. The first few chapters is J Jerusalem. The next few chapters is Samaria. The next few chapters is to the ends of the earth. And they actually are able to do <coughs> what Jesus commissioned them to do because they have become his successors. And they are now little Jesuses, multiplied a thousand times, spreading over the earth um, because they've been anointed at Pentecost.
So it doesn't matter when you receive that prophetic anointing. Some people get it when they get converted, but a lot of people get it after they were converted. Um, and some people get pickled again and again. You know, like in Acts 4, they had a whole new Pentecost and refilling of the Holy Spirit. doesn't really matter what sequence it comes in, but we need all the ministries of the Holy Spirit that communicate Jesus to us. Forgiveness of sins, resurrection to a new nature and new life, and that special Pentecostal prophetic empowering of the Spirit so that we become the sons and daughters of the prophets. And that's how Luke tells the story of Pentecost. Is that okay? Can I, can I go to bed now? <laughs> That's so, so, so good. Um, but two sentences on the revival breaking up. In, in Asbury? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So I've got a, a couple of people I know. Um, you know, Asbury is a Methodist, evangelical, charismatically oriented seminary in in Kentucky, where they make bourbon. Appropriate. And uh, um, the main New Testament professor there is this guy called Craig Keener, who is a fanatical follower of Jesus, and he's a gigantic professor. And a friend of mine in the Vineyard Church there did his PhD under him. So I'm, I've had lunch with this crazy professor and his student. And his PhD thesis, he studied a number of revivals. And one of them is the Asprey revival that happened in 1955 or what? No? About 100 years ago. And it was a student revival that spread through colleges and then everywhere. And, okay, this is just a little thing about my connections. It's a really weird thing. There's a chapel on that campus of the seminary, and there's only one church that worships in that chapel, Methodist Seminary. It's a vineyard church where this professor worships as well. So I don't know what's going on there, but that revival started as a revival of repentance and humility and worship, and then it's it went on, a meeting started and went on for days. It didn't stop, day and night, day and night, day and night, through the night. And then it went to other campuses and it spread all over the USA. And that was that revival years ago. And so it's probably about a month ago now, is it? This started again at Asbury. And already it's gone, multiplied to like 10 or 15 other Bible colleges and then into the churches. And I've got friends, they're very like prophetic type people from, from um, uh, the south of the USA. And they went there to go and visit it. And I'm trying to get out of them what it's like. And the one friend of mine just said, it's, Derek, it's very sweet. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> but I think it's worship driven. It's also humility. It's students. And the meeting has gone on for days and days and days and days without ceasing. And it's again spreading. So it seems almost like a rerun. And what we were talking about were we in the car. I mean, most revivals in history have been led by young people. 
generally. And here again, it's a whole lot of students. So I think it's really um, quite exciting, and let's see what, what happens, you know. Yeah. Let's take you to bed. Uh, there are a whole bunch of books here. Derek will be here for a few moments uh, if you want to catch him. He really, such a big thank you. This, he keeps talking about those other big voices, but those other big voices he speaks to, and they listen to him. So just so you know, he's one of those big voices, and you have been deeply blessed. So thank you for coming out tonight. Uh, don't stay and have too much coffee. We will kick you out soon. But uh, come grab a book, connect with one another for the next half an hour, 20 minutes, and uh, have a fantastic night. Isn't it awesome? You come to church, you go home before you would have ended life group. You are blessed tonight. May God bless you. Have a great evening. <laughs>